Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to another exciting installment of History Hack. Matt here. I'm on my own today, so please don't hold that against me because we have got a fascinating episode for you. Because today we are talking about Sterling Moss. When Sir Sterling died last year, it was not just motorsport fans who took pause to remember the boy. Sterling transcended motorsport, but he was far more than just the greatest driver never to win the world championship. In his new book, The Boy, Sterling Moss, A Life in 60 Laps, Journalist Richard Williams looks at how Sterling Moss stood head and shoulders above those who, in the record books at least, far more laurels. Richard, thanks for joining us. How are you doing? Hi, Matt. I'm fine, thank you. Nice to, nice to meet you. Yes. We usually start these things with a lockdown question. How has it been for you? <laughs> um, I, I've spent so much of my life travelling um, quite frantically, as mostly as a sports journalist um i did 20 years pretty much non-stop it was like being in a rock band and never having that six months off between albums um that actually it probably hasn't affected me as much as it's affected many other people i haven't minded being at home for a long period of time at all really i miss going out actually i miss going out to hear music i miss going to football matches whatever you know of course like everybody but um I haven't I haven't felt imprisoned uh, and I've had lots of writing to get on with. So that that helps. The list of gigs that never happened that one had tickets to <laughs> is quite long. For the last couple of years, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Yeah. So let's let's dive into this. Um, I guess usually I'd ask why Sterling Moss, but I suppose that's a pretty redundant question because Sterling just was larger than life for all those years, even after he stopped racing. Yeah, I suppose in a way the question is why another book about Sterling Moss? Um, because there are have been many, th- uh, and there were throughout his long life many. Um, some of them listed all his cars and described them. Some of them listed all his races and how he got on in every one of them, you know, all 500-odd of them. Um, several of them were authorised biographies um, and... You know, they were all really interesting and all very good. But when he died in April, um, I felt two things. I felt that there was room for something that looked at the whole life and that looked at it from the perspective of trying to place him as a, as a national hero in the life of the nation, in a way, what he meant, um, what he meant to us. Uh, and to the world of motor racing as well. And I also remembered that I'd begun in 1957 when I was 10 years old. I'd actually started this book um, in a school exercise book because in 1957 was really when I got interested in motor racing. And as a 10-year-old, 
he was my hero. He was everybody's hero in the 50s. Um, you know, Dennis, cricket meant Dennis Compton, football meant Stanley Matthews, motor racing meant Sterling Moss. Um, and so I started writing his life story <laughs> in 1957 on one side of the of the of, of, of on the left hand page i'd write the story on the right hand page i'd paste pictures of him that i cut out from my dad's newspaper or you know i had a neighbor who gave me motoring magazines so i cut pictures out from that and i guess i did that for maybe a year or so maddeningly i carried that book around me with me for decades you know moving from you know all the house moves i've ever done i know it's somewhere <laughs> <laughs> I can't find it. But anyway, I thought, well, maybe maybe now is the time to complete that book. The longest deadline <laughs> in in authorial history, probably. But you know, I have very strong feelings about Sterling. Still do. Uh and in the mean you know, in the intervening time from being ten years old, I met him on you know quite a lot of occasions in various contexts. And I thought, well, perhaps I should do this. Uh, and I wanted to structure it in a slightly different way, rather than just writing a straightforward biography. Uh, I thought maybe a more interesting way to do it would be that Neil McGregor book, you know, History of the World in 100 Objects. Um, I thought maybe if I take a finite number of incidents, cars, wives and girlfriends, uh, particular races, and devote a chapter to each one. Perhaps that's an interesting way of doing it um, that might be enjoyable to write and to read. So that's why it's 60 chapters, shortish. Some of them a bit longer, some of them very short. And that's why it's called A Life in 60 Maps. But let's start at the beginning. Who, who was he? Where was, where was he from? Who were his people, I suppose we could say? Yeah, well, he was born in London. Um, his parents were uh, an interesting couple. Um, his dad, uh, Alfred, owned a chain of dentist surgeries uh, around London and the home counties. Before the war, he'd been a racer. He'd raced at Brooklyn's and he'd, raced, he'd actually studied dentistry in Indianapolis. Um, and he'd raced in the Indy 500 when he was there and done some dirt track racing as well. Um, I suspect that, you know, a, a British driver at that time would have been quite a novelty, you know, probably good for the box office. And Alfred Moss married um, a woman called Aileen Crawford, a Scottish woman who was an expert horsewoman. She competed uh, as an equestrian. And she also was interested in motorsport. And together, Sterling's mum and dad competed in trials and hill climbs and things like that. Um, his mother was actually a, a, a women's champion at, at trials. So the interest in cars was always there. When Sterling was quite small, um, the family moved to a farm in Berkshire. Uh, so there was lots of room. There were lots of barns where, where, you know, the parents kept their Rolls Royces and Alfa Romeos and, you know, Lanciers and all kinds of things. Um, 
and young Sterling and his younger sister, Pat, could ride their horses, ponies, horses, and they competed, both of them, show jumping as kids, very successfully. But Sterling could also learn to drive in a, an, an old pre-war Austin 7, which his dad had bought for 15 quid or something and converted into a kind of pickup truck for the farm. And that was the first car Sterling drove when he was nine or 10, I think. Um, so, you know, it was a, a, a rather nice environment for, a, for children. Um, and for him, I think it was, <laughs> it was a very nice compensation for his school days, which he didn't enjoy very much. Um, he went to Haleybury, which was a public school. Um, and he had some quite serious illnesses when he was a kid, um, which kept him off school for quite a long time. He missed several terms, which he always felt him, held him back academically. Um, he, 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 he quite liked sport. He was a good runner. He liked rugby. He was a winger. Uh, hated cricket because it was too static and boring. Not enough happened for him. Uh, but he left, he left school without having, shall we say, distinguished himself academically. Man after my own heart, really. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so after the war, he, he, he gets into racing. I think the thing we need to make clear is today there's sort of a defined route to the top and still money does help. But for a young chap like, like Sterling starting out, what, what, was, what was the path into motor racing in, in, the, in the late 40s? Well, motor racing in Britain in the 40s was a pretty informal and slightly haphazard affair. Um, motor racing on public roads had always been banned in Britain or had since the early 20s, I think, um, which is why we didn't have any of the great road races that they had in Italy and France. Um, so it was a bit, you know, and Brooklyn's, was no the pre-war track was no longer in use crystal palace couldn't be revived donnington park at that point um couldn't be used so it was difficult really it was sort of hill climbs um and speed trials so sterling began in 1947 in his dad's bmw 328 which was a very nice two-seater pre-war two-seater sports car powerful good car so he raced that um in in speed events and um in 47 but then for the you know it became obvious that very early on that he had a talent um, and he was not remotely discouraged by his parents um, who both loved motorsports so they thought it was fine uh, the the first plan had been you know since he didn't have any qualifications he was going to try and become a waiter or work in a restaurant or something he did a bit of that um, not very happily and he decided very early you know when he was 17 or 18, that he wanted to be a racing driver. So in 1948, the next step, with his family's help, um, was to buy a 500cc single-seater car for the new formula, which eventually became Formula 3, which was just starting out. And this was really a, a British invention. A load of chaps after the war um, who could get their hands on uh, bits of old saloon cars um, and motorcycle engines and stick them together, you know, make a, a formula for very small, uh, single, very light single-seater cars. And simultaneously, 
people were starting to realize that there were old aerodromes lying around after the war, now disused, you know, that were actually quite good for racing on because they had perimeter tracks, flat, very nicely tarmacked. Um, you didn't, you know, put a few straw bales up, paint a finish line, and you've got a racetrack. Um, and these little 500cc cars were perfectly suited to, to those tracks. His dad made him, made, he had to sell a few things like his bike and his tent and <laughs> his radio um, to his dad, uh, who gave him the rest of the money to buy um, one of these new racing cars built by the Cooper Car Company in Surbiton in Surrey, who were rapidly becoming the leading builders of these little cars. All sorts of people were building their own specials to this formula and, you know, sticking their own names on them. But Cooper was a bit more professional. Um, and eventually, of course, it became a world championship Formula One team. Uh, but th at this point, they were still drawing up the blueprints for the chassis frames on the floor of the garage in chalk. Um, uh, anyway, Sterling got one of these and it very quickly became apparent that he was... Um, very good at it indeed and he was challenging right from the start challenging people with much more experience and starting to build a reputation very early and that reputation very quickly got him into into sports cars didn't it which i actually think that the 50s for sports cars is possibly the greatest era for them as much as as much as the old group c days were, were fantastic but you know jaguar aston martin Every everybody in those beautiful, beautiful cars mm. racing around <laughs> B roads in Northern Ireland. There's there's something incredible yeah. about that. Yeah, and it was it was in Ireland that he really made his mark in 1950 when the Tourist Trophy was held um, for sports cars on the Dundrod circuit, and uh, the Jaguar XK120 had just come out. You know, beautiful, very fast comparatively affordable car and this was really before ferrari and maserati had got their road cars um going they were building sports cars already but you know the xk was a car that you could drive on the road and race so he asked jaguar you know who were just starting a racing team if he could drive one of their cars at the tt he was 20 years old and you know had a, already had a reputation and they said no. They said he didn't have enough experience. He thought it was because Dundrod was a dangerous circuit. And, well, all racing was dangerous in those days, but Dundrod was pretty hazardous. And they thought if this 20-year-old rising star killed himself in one of their cars, it would be terrible publicity. So what he did was borrow an XK120 from a man called Tom Wisdom who was a racing driver, amateur racing driver, and professional uh, motoring journalist for national papers. And Tommy Wisdom had one of these cars, and he, he'd been watching Moss, knew how good he was. So he said, okay, you can, I'm going to be driving something else, a Jupiter I mean, in this race, but, so you can, you can drive my XK. And there was a works uh, Jaguar team and the works Aston Martin team, and um, it was, a, you know, a, a long distance race um, on a, in a narrow, dangerous circuit. 
pouring with rain, high winds, terrible conditions. And he won very convincingly ahead of all these much more experienced um, drivers in equally good machinery. And that really, um, that really helped him make his mark. And, it, you know, he said that night, the Jaguar team manager and the owner, Bill Lyons of the company, offered him a works contract for the next season. He really joined Jaguar at just the right, the right time, didn't he? He did, although he didn't have much luck with Jaguar. You know, he raced in all the big races. He came second at Le Mans in 53, I think, which was his best result ever at Le Mans. It was probably the one big race he was destined never to win, but he certainly helped them build a reputation as a top uh, sports car team. And, you know, in those days, racing at Le Mans, winning the Mille Emilia or the Targa Florio or the Tourist Trophy was thought to be great publicity for your, for your road cars. Um, you know, whether you were Jaguar or Mercedes or you know, whoever. So he did a lot for, for them in, from, from that point of view. Um, but maybe it was with Jaguar that he began to get a reputation for being either unlucky or too hard on his cars. And it's probably true that, you know, he could drive the cars harder and faster than almost anybody else. And that possibly put more strain on them than, than others. Um, but once or twice at Le Mans, he was sent out to set such a fast pace from the start of the 24-hour race that the other manufacturers' cars would be tempted to try and keep up with him. Um, and they would blow up. Uh, and the price of that was that he would eventually blow up as well. For instance, at Le Mans in 1959, when he was driving for Aston Martin in the DBR1s, you know, he went out and did exactly that and destroyed the Ferrari team just through the pace he set, which allowed the second and third Aston Martins to come first and second in the race. And he'd long retired because he'd... Um, He'd done to his car what he'd done to the Ferraris as well. I think we need to mention Mr. Ferrari now because <laughs> the, this is one of those those great bits of the Mars Legends, isn't it? Because it's his father and he receives a phone call to race for Ferrari in Formula One and it doesn't quite go to plan and it, it, it remains needle for, for the best part of a decade, doesn't it? It was in 19... 51 when he was racing for hwm a british team in uh, in formula two two liter cars single seaters and although he wasn't really winning races because the hwms weren't very reliable he was putting up such good performances that enzo ferrari took notice of him and the first thing he did was get in touch with Moss and offer him a drive at the French Grand Prix at Reims and the British Grand Prix at Silverstone. Moss, who was an honourable chap, was already committed to HWM for the, uh, the race in France. So he said, I can't do that, but I'll race at Silverstone. Ferrari said, no, I need the driver for both those races. So he gave it to an Argentine called... Um, 
Jose Fualan Gonzalez, who was a friend of Fangio's. And Fangio won the race at Silverstone, which was a very historic victory because he beat the Alfa Romeos for the first time. Uh, so, you know, I think Ferrari was happy with Gonzalez at that point. So kind of Moss had he'd lost out there um, through, you know, behaving honorably. But then Ferrari said, OK, uh, you can come and race my new Formula Two car at Bari in Italy on the on the east coast of Italy, down in Puglia. So Mossad, fine. So, so he and his dad made the very long journey down to Puglia, very long in those days, you know, 1951, no motorways, no anything. So you know, they had flew and took a train. And uh, eventually they got to Bari and they went to the garage where they knew the Ferrari team had set up um, in the town. And there was the new Formula Two car, and Moss went up to it, and you know was about to jump in and try out the seat and the steering wheel and the pedals, and the mechanic said, "No, no, 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 um, you know that's not your car. Uh, there's been a change of plan." Uh, Piero Taruffi, Italian, much more experienced, he's going to drive it. So Moss, as you can imagine, was <laughs> incandescent with disappointment. <laughs> Uh, Enzo Ferrari was quite a long way away in Modena. You know, he didn't go to the races, so he wasn't there to uh, argue the toss with. So Sterling and his dad had to swallow their anger. Um, and eventually they went back to, um, to England, nursing a grudge, uh, understandably. Uh, and um, that did two things, really. It put Moss off. Ferrari for quite a long time to come and it also made him I mean he was a very patriotic person a lot of people were in the 50s um, it made him want to drive uh, a British car to success in Formula One racing now you know there wasn't much around in those days if you wanted to drive a British car so you know, that made life difficult for him for a number of years. He had to eventually had to compromise on that, but not he'd, Ferrari kept offering him, you know, when, as his reputation grew and grew and grew. Ferrari kept saying, come and drive for me, come and drive for me. And Moss just, you know, turned him down out of hand every time for a long time until, as I guess we'll talk about later, right in the back end of his career. Um, but it was a very formative experience that, grave disappointment in Bari. Just to say, that is a wonderful part of the world, though. Oh, right. Yeah. I oh, spent yeah. a summer there. It's just absolutely delightful. Yeah, um, so if, if, if you're going to be terribly disappointed, it's a nice place to... <laughs> <laughs> I don't think... I don't think the scenery... You know, I don't think going to look at the beautiful village, hill village of Sapulio <laughs> was really on Sterling's mind at that point. So there's rumours bubbling around about this time of the, the fallout with with uh, Ferrari that Mercedes may return, um, and it, it, you know I, I find I find sort of this this fascinating that we we live in an age of of Mercedes domination, and the thought of Mercedes coming back sort of filled people with a little bit of dread because they had dominated pre-war, and famously, as your previous book also told the story of, had a, a very fast, charismatic British driver as well, so everybody was looking 
looking to Stuttgart to see whether or not they were coming because it was essentially the same setup, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, Mercedes had dominated before the First World War, before the Second World War, um, and now they were coming back again. And everybody knew that, you know, if Mercedes were coming back, they were coming back to dominate again. Um, so at the end of 1953, uh, when it was known that they were on their way back, Sterling and his dad and his manager, Ken Gregory, got in touch with the Mercedes management, which, you know, as you said, was this basically the same people they'd had before the war. Um, and so any chance of a seat in your team for 1954, your Grand Prix team? And Alfred Neubauer, the great team manager at Mercedes, He'd seen Sterling quite a lot and he'd been impressed. And he said, no, you're not ready yet. So, you know, just wait, not this year. So Sterling knew, he tried out every British car available. The BRM, the Connaught, uh, the Van Wall, which was a new, a new make, um, backed by a millionaire industrialist. There used to be people called millionaire industrialists in the 50s, and Tony Vanderbilt was one of them. Um, but Moss decided that these cars were all just not good enough, basically. Um, they didn't have the resources behind them that the you know, Ferrari or Mercedes or Maserati had. So he didn't want to drive for Ferrari. Uh, he couldn't drive for Mercedes. So the only option really was Maserati, um, who were building a very nice new car um, called the 250F. So he got in touch with Maserati and they said, no, we're entering three works cars and um, we've got three Argentinian drivers to drive them uh, because we're getting some money from the Argentinian government. But we are also building three cars for customers, which will cost you you know, you want to buy one of those, it'll cost you £5,000. A lot of money in those days. So Moss's dad, Alfred Moss, um, decided let's do that because Sterling was actually away in America at the time when this decision was made. Um, and uh, Moss's dad made the, the decision that the car would be bought. Sterling would have to pay for it <laughs> out of his winnings and, you know, starting money and other things. S selling his radio to his dad wasn't going to cut it this time. <laughs> no, it wasn't. <laughs> Not for a 250 yeah. Um So the car arrived and it had, was painted green, as he'd asked, um, unlike the works cars, which were, of course, Italian red. Uh, and um, it was going to be looked after by his own team, by his own mechanics, uh, working out of his dad's farm. And uh, it did well enough in that season, including at the beginning of the season, uh, that Maserati realised that, well, actually, he's going better than our works drivers. Uh, and when one of the works drivers very sadly was killed at the Nürburgring, and Sterling had performed very well in his privately entered car, Maserati said, well, look, um, okay, uh, come and drive with us. We'll paint your car red. Um, you can have the works mechanics. You can have all the latest modifications, you know, the new engine, whatever, whatever we've got. 
So effectively, he ran the second half of the season as a works Maserati driver and came very, very, very close to winning the Italian Grand Prix until the car broke down very late while he was leading convincingly, beating the Mercedes. Um, so that was, you know, at that point, he was a Grand Prix, already a Grand Prix winner in all but name. Um, and, you know, once again, he'd, uh, he'd sent a message to the Mercedes management saying, you know, I'm ready. The 250F is one of those cars that looks like it's doing 180 miles an hour standing still, doesn't it? It's, it's gorgeous. Not an, e- not an easy car to drive. Very few were actually successful in it. Well, it was, I, I, I think it wasn't, no racing cars of that era were easy to drive. But if you were a top driver, I think it was a very satisfying car to drive because its behaviour was predictable. It didn't have any vices. You know, the more virtuosity you put into driving it, the better the results. And it just had that thing. It had such a beautiful shape. You know, if you asked a little boy in the 1950s to draw a racing car, it would come out looking like a a Maserati 250F. It was just perfect proportions. And its handling was was like that too. So there are many pictures of Sterling taking corners in a Maserati 250F, you know, where the car is, the, the wheels are not pointing in the direction that the car is traveling in because in those days you drove the car through the input, input of the throttle. So the car was drifting. That's the famous four-wheel drift of which Fangio and Moss were the, were the masters. And it's a beautiful thing to watch. It still is if you if you go to a historic car race and you see somebody driving, you know, an old Maserati really well, it won't be quite the same because they're on fatter tires nowadays with much more grip. In those days, you know, the tire, they were like bicycle tires. So the cars would drift easily and beautifully, but it was a fantastic thing to see. Um, so in a way, you know, the 250F was to Moss as a Stradivarius would have been to Yehudi Menuhin. You know, it was the perfect instrument. And it sounds as good as it looks. It, I, I, I just love that car. It's, yeah. I think, I think every, everybody loves 250. Yeah. Um, but, but we digress because there's a, there's a silver elephant in the room. It's 1955 and Herr Neubauer decides that the boy is, is ready for his cars. And he's up against a bit of a challenge in his teammate, isn't he? Uh, he is because his teammate is Juan Manuel, Manuel Fangio who was already a world champion and on his way to five world championships in the end. And by that time, Fangio was the sort of presiding genius of of Formula One. I think everybody recognised, particularly once Alberto Ascari, who'd been the champion in 52 and 53, once he was killed early in 1955, um, Fangio didn't really have a rival. Um, and the combination of Fangio and the Mercedes W196, you know, lovely eight-cylinder, very powerful, very reliable, strong Formula One car um, was unbeatable. But for Moss, it was a great opportunity. You know, he would be the number two driver. There was no doubt about that. But it was a great opportunity for him to follow in Fangio's wheel tracks, um, you know, numerous times that year. They finished first and second. Um, very close, very close company. It was his finishing school, really, you know, sitting a few feet behind Fangio at you know, 150 miles an hour. 
And Fangio, you know, went on to win, sure enough, went on to win his third world championship that year. Uh, but Moss did win uh, his first World Championship Grand Prix at Aintree uh, in the British Grand Prix on the perimeter track of the Grand National course running in the other direction, running clockwise, that's right, because the Grand National goes anti-clockwise, but in front of those great wooden grandstands that they have for the Grand National. And he led most of the race, Fangio led a bit of it, and in the end, he finished a few feet ahead of Fangio. Now, you know, the debate goes on all these, you know, more than half a century later. <laughs> uh, did Fangio let him win because it was good publicity, because they got on very well, they were friends, and obviously it would be great for Moss to win in front of the British crowd, his maiden world championship victory. Um, Fangio never gave any indication that he'd let Moss win that race. Um, but it certainly was good for everybody. You know, it worked out very well. Moss, you know, would admit that, you know, maybe Fangio let him win. Uh, at that point, he knew, he always, you know, he always said Fangio was better than me in single seaters. Uh, I was better than him in sports cars. Um, he was... You know, he certainly grew to be as good as Fangio in single-seaters. But at that point, probably, um, he was still, you know, it was right that he finished runner-up in the World Championship for the first time to the great man. Just to the listener, if you've not Googled that Aintree race and to see just how close Fangio was as they crossed the line do, but it is absolutely wonderful because in, in the background, you can just see the stands literally losing their minds to see Moss cross the line first. Oh, yeah. It's, it's wonderful, yeah. wonderful Pathé footage, yeah. but you did mention the sports cars and we cannot, or I'm not going to let you get away with that chatting about the Emilia Emilia. Cause not only is that possibly one of the, the greatest wins it also gave us possibly one of the, the greatest motorsport articles <laughs> ever in in the in Jenks is is right up because just describe what the Millia Millia was. It, yeah, granted, it, it is what it says on the tin, but what, yeah. what was it if people don't know what it is? Well, the Millia Millia, which means a thousand miles, um, was started in the uh, before the war um, as a thousand mile race around the top half of Italy, basically. It started in Brescia. It went down the right-hand side, um, the Adriatic coast, uh, and then across to Rome, across the width of Italy, through the mountains, and then up through Tuscany, basically, um, through Florence and Siena and Bologna, and all the way back to Brescia on closed roads, that thousand miles would be entirely closed insofar as was possible, you know, apart from the odd flock of sheep or <laughs> chicken or sort of stray child. Um, uh, and level crossings, there were level crossings <laughs> which were closed. Uh, but the cars would set off at one minute intervals and they'd, the first ones would go off uh, after midnight sometimes, 
maybe maybe they start at midnight. Um, and the number on your car would correspond to the time that you set off. So, for instance, in 1955, Moss's Mercedes sports car uh, carried the number 722, which meant that he started at 22 minutes past seven in the morning. And the slowest would go off first. So you'd have all these Fiat Topolinos and tiny little, you know, weird things going off. And then eventually you'd get the big cars like the Mercedes and the Ferraris, which were more or less Formula One cars with an extra seat and, and bodywork with wings and lights. Um, so it was a fantastic spectacle. I mean, just unimaginable now um, to see them. And Moss, uh, Moss had, had driven it a few times before without much luck. And one year while he was driving for Jaguar, um, he'd done several reconnaissance laps with a, a, a mechanic. And they'd tried making notes on the course because, you know, you can't learn a thousand miles like you could learn Brands Hatch or, you know, Monaco. Um, you know, it's always going to be a bit approximate. But in 1955, you know, because Mercedes was such a, professional operation this gave him the opportunity to refine that idea so he invited a man called dennis jenkinson who was a motoring journalist wrote for, he was the continental correspondent of motorsport and a wonderful wonderful character uh, and journalist uh, who'd actually won a world championship himself as the sidecar passenger to a man called eric oliver in the world sidecar championships i think around 19 beginning of the 50s anyway so he you know was clearly fearless <laughs> had some experience of being a passenger at high speed hanging off the side at high speed. <laughs> so and he was a great fan of moss you know as well i admired him very much so moss said well why don't you come along and we'll do several reconnaissance laps and we'll make notes so they cooked up and i think with the aid of another mercedes driver john fitch uh, he may have had some input into this as well. What they did was make an aluminium box with a little perspex window. And they did three or four reconnaissance laps during which they wrote off two Mercedes cars. Um, Not just any cars. There were 300 SLs, there was, weren't there? One of them was one of the real, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and yeah, they finished up. Mercedes said, we're not giving you any more of those. You can have a saloon car for the last go round." And Jenkinson made these fantastically detailed notes, you know, level crossing, humpback bridge, sharp right hand, you know, hairpin to the left, blah, blah, blah. Um, and wrote them all down on a roll of, effectively a roll of lavatory paper, um, which was then put on a spindle inside this aluminium box with a handle and he could turn it, roll it round um, and read the notes through the perspex window as they went along sitting in the passenger seat of this racing car. Um, and they had to have hand signals, of course, because, you know, an unsilenced three-litre, eight-cylinder racing engine wouldn't have been able to hear very much. So they devised signal. Um, and um, it worked. That's all you can say. It worked a treat. You know, They were racing against the best... Grand Prix drivers of the day and the fastest sports cars in the world, including Fangio. Fangio drove single-handed. He had no navigator, co-driver person, um, as did most of the, actually most of the others. But using this kind of super system of signals, 
Moss and Jenkinson got round in just over 10 hours, which was an average of just under 100 miles an hour, 99 miles an hour. Imagine on public roads, no motorways anywhere, of course, you know, we're talking about, you know, country roads, mountain passes through the Apennines. Um, lined with people in many places. Lined with people everywhere. <laughs> yes, just <laughs> incredible. You know, can you imagine battering through the middle of Siena? You know, the streets <laughs> lined with, with, with you, know, you know, 10 deep with people and going absolutely full chat or 10 tenths, as they always called it. And winning this historic victory, which was, you know, in many ways, the most remarkable victory of his career. They, they said, you know, two years later, the, the race uh, was stopped because, well, there were two more editions and then, then it wasn't held anymore because it was too many people were getting killed. It was too dangerous. So his record stands in perpetuity. Um, an, an amazing thing. And that season for Mercedes, he also won the Targa Florio and the TT, um, which meant that they won the, the World Sports Car Championship, which was very important to them because they were finishing racing at the end of the season. There had been the terrible disaster at Le Mans where one of the Mercedes cars driven by a French driver, Pierre Lebeg, flew into the crowd in front of the grandstands and killed 80-odd people. Uh, where, and, you know, the race went on to a finish, amazingly. That was the way things were in those days. Hawthorne won that with the Jaguar, didn't he? Hawthorne won it with the Jaguar, mostly because uh, in the middle of the night, several hours after this catastrophe, the Mercedes team pulled out when Fangio and Moss were co-driving a one Mercedes car and they were leading. And they would, you know, that car wouldn't have broken down, and it was faster than the D-type, so they would have won that race. Neither of them ever won the Mans, um, but the team withdrew in the middle of the night, packed up the cars, and you know, went home. Um, so, you know, that. But anyway, they were able to finish the season with the World Championship Formula One driver and the runner-up. They. Uh, and the World Sports Car Championship. Uh, and then they, then they called it a day. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I, I suppose the, the, the great rivalry was with Mike Hawthorne. The wonderfully dapper gent, always in a bow tie. And um, after the Mercedes years, Moss would find himself up against him, especially in 1958. Who was Mike Hawthorne? Because he was, for that brief time, 
as big as Moss, really. For I guess it, for school schoolboys, you were a Moss fan or you were a a Hawthorne fan. I yeah, suppose. it was like, like Beetle, Beatles or the Stones, really. <laughs> and and uh, yeah, that, it was a great rivalry. Hawthorne Hawthorne arrived a little bit after Moss. He was born in Yorkshire. He was the son of a man with a background in motor racing who ran a garage in Farnham in Surrey. Um, so once again, you know, he had parental encouragement and he made his first impact. In, he, unlike most of that generation, he didn't race 500cc Formula 3 cars. He started off in a Riley sports car and then a Cooper Bristol Formula 2 car. And then, you know, 1953, he got the Ferrari contract that Moss had kept turning down. Um and, you know, he used it to very good effect because that year at Reims, he won, you know, he became the first British driver to win a World Championship Grand Prix, um, edging, edging out Fangio in the Maserati uh, and beating all the other works Ferrari and Maserati drivers. So that was quite a, quite a coup. And they were very different types. Uh, Moss was the complete professional. Um, you know, white helmet, white overalls usually, um, you know, kept himself fit, uh, didn't, um, didn't drink very much, smoked a bit, but, you know, looked after himself, um, kept away from women for a few nights before the race. Hawthorne was the opposite, um, completely the opposite. Uh, you know, he got Hawthorne after a race, you know, if he was racing at Goodwood, you know, on the way home to Farnham from the race meeting, he'd stop off at a pub or possibly three. Um, and, uh, you know, he and his mate, Peter Collins, who was the other British star of the 50s, uh, you know, they got up to lots of larks, often involving women in, you know, wherever they happened to be racing at the time. You know, they were sort of good time boys. Hawthorne was a very good driver, no doubt about that, but he he had bad days. Uh, Moss never really had an off day. He was one of the things about him was that he was a very consistent driver. You know, he could produce his best on any given day in any car. Hawthorne wasn't like that. He could be really, really quick. He did have health problems, um, some quite deep-lying health problems that probably contributed to that. Uh, he wasn't as classical a stylist as Moss. You know, you watched Moss driving and you saw something, you know, whether you knew anything about cars or cared about racing, you, you knew you were looking at something beautiful. Hawthorne was a little bit more rudimentary in his driving. He was very quick, but um, not the same kind of aesthetic uh, experience watching him. But they were the great rivals um, at that time. And it was a rivalry that reached its climax in 1958. In 1956 and 57, Moss had become established as a, as a, a winner, a Grand Prix winner. Uh, in 56, he'd gone back to Maserati and he'd won at Monaco and Monza. Um, and he'd finished again runner-up in the World Championship to Fangio. And then in 57, he joined the Van Wall team uh, run by Tony Vanderbilt because at last he felt here was a British team with which he could win 
Grand Prix and probably the World Championship. That was the idea. He'd raced once for Van Wall in 56, the International Trophy at Silverstone, and won, won the race against good opposition. So that convinced him. And Van der Velle offered him a decent deal as the number one driver in the team of 57. And it was a great season. Um, he and Tony Brooks co-drove co the Van Wall that won the British Grand Prix at Aintree that year. The first time British drivers in the British car had won the British Grand Prix. But then Moss won two more Grand Prix that season, one at Pescara and the other at Monza, which was beating the Italians on their own soil, which in a way was even more satisfying because um, Vanderville was like Moss. You know, he wanted to beat the red cars um, for patriotic reasons. Uh, and that they'd done it. So 1958 looked like being a very good season. You know, the prospects were great. Um, they had what, you know, was clearly the fastest car it seemed to be. Hawthorne and Collins were driving for Ferrari. And they were, Ferrari had a new car, good, very good new car, Dino 246. Moss started the season. The Vanals weren't ready at the beginning of the season for the Argentinian Grand Prix in Buenos Aires. Uh, so Moss went there with a little Cooper. Uh, it was the formula was for two and a half liter cars, and he had a little rear engine Cooper that was only had a two liter engine. Um, but by dint of uh, great strategy and making his tires last the whole race, you know, and finished the race, they were down to the canvas. You know, the rubber had worn away; um, they were about to go pop. But he managed to finish you know, three seconds ahead of the nearest Ferrari. The Ferraris had thought he was going to make a pit stop. And it thought, oh, well, don't worry, we'll get him before the end. And then they realized too late that they weren't going to. So that was the first post-war victory for a rear engine car, very historic. Um, and, of course, you know, trend-setting, because eventually all Formula One cars would become rear engine. Um, but that was, you know, a big moment. But then, then the Van Walls were ready for the rest of the season. You know, it was obviously going to... Once Collins had been killed at the Nürburgring, very sadly, um, the championship was obviously going to be between Moss and Hawthorne. Eventually, Hawthorne won it by a single point. And the only reason for that, he'd won one Grand Prix in the season. Moss had won four. But because the the scoring system was the way it was in those days. You know, you got good points for coming second or third, and Hawthorne had five second places in the third and the fifth. In the end, he had more points than Moss. One more point. One more point. Now, what had happened um, three races from the end of the season in Portugal at Porto was that Moss was winning the race easily when... Hawthorne was about to finish second, distant second, but he stalled his car. He, he spun, stalled his car. Engine stopped. The only way to get it started, no, no starter on Formula One cars in those days, um, was to push it, get out and push and jump in. Um, and he tried to do that, but the circuit was a bit uphill at that point. So he turned it round and push started it on the pavement and got going again and finished second. And while he was pushing it, 
and getting it started, Moss went past on his lap of honour. Pulled in at the end of the race, finished. Hawthorne finished second. The stewards immediately called Hawthorne up and disqualified him because you weren't allowed to push start your car against the direction of the circuit, which is what he'd had to do to get it going downhill. And Moss heard about that and he went into the stewards and said, no, 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 no. Um, hold on. I saw him and he wasn't on the circuit, which is what the regulations say you have to be. Or, you know, to, <laughs> you know, uh, he was on the pavement. Uh, so that means you can't disqualify him. It was all right. So uh, Hawthorne, they undisqualified Hawthorne. They let his second place stand, um, thanks to Moss's testimony. And with it, he kept the, fast, the point that he'd earned for the fastest lap. Two races later, they went to Casablanca for the Grand Prix of Morocco, the last race of the season. Um, Moss needed to finish first and get the fastest lap and for Hawthorne to finish no better than third if he, Moss, was going to win his first world championship. Well, he kept his part of the bargain. He finished first and got the point for the fastest lap. Hawthorne was in third place, but he was behind his teammate, a young American called Phil Hill. And Hill, being a good teammate before the end of the race, let Hawthorne through into second place, which allowed him to win the championship by a single point, a single point, you know, you could say had come in Portugal when Moss had made his gesture. So Moss never complained, you know, that was the way things were. Um, he believed at that point because he was at the height of his powers, you know, he was 29 years old um, and, uh, you know, still functioning, you know, brilliantly. Uh, there would be a chance the next year or the year after. So he never, ever complained about that or said he wished he hadn't done, made that gesture of Porter. Uh, and Hawthorne became, therefore, the first British world champion. And sadly, he was killed in a road accident a few weeks later. Mm. You see, I, I've often wondered if, if it hadn't have been an Englishman, if he'd have been so sporting. <laughs> Uh, I think he would have been, actually. I, I don't think it made any difference. He and Hawthorne, they had a very cordial relationship. Um, but underneath, they didn't really like each other very much. Um, Collins, who was Hawthorne's best buddy, got on very well with, with Moss. He was a very sympathetic character. They drove together to win the Targa Florio. Um, but with Hawthorne, it was a much, you know, under the surface, it was a pricklier relationship. I think my my favourite part of, of Sterling's story is his relationship with Rob Walker. In this period, you had privateers who would buy a car, enter it, um, and, and off they go. Later on, you'd have the, you know, what was it? Hesk is saying you could buy a chassis, buy an engine and win a Grand Prix. But this was this was a chap who was Walker as in Johnny Walker and just had an absolute passion for the sport and supplied cars and yeah, did, did the whole nine yards for the cars for some of the, the, the great drivers of the fifties the and sixties. Well, Rob Walker was quite a character. Uh, he'd driven at Le Mans before the war um, in his own Delahaye 
and he'd done well. He finished the race quite high up. Uh, he drove the whole race in a pinstripe suit. And at his last pit stop, he got out and had a swig from the last bottle of the champagne that the mechanics had been consuming. <laughs> and then got back in and finished the race. <laughs> he got married after the war and he promised his wife that he wouldn't drive anymore, but that didn't stop him entering cars. So he became a, a private entrant, um, getting, entering cars for other drivers. And as, you, you know, as we said in... 58 he'd entered the cooper buenos aires that moss won with and they they had a great friendship moss loved driving for him you know it was a, a handshake relationship he trusted him uh, he he knew that if he said he wanted to enter a particular race walker would send a car with the mechanics um, and if he wanted to drive in a race for somebody else that was fine with walker so it was the best of all worlds, except he was never going to get cutting edge machinery that you would get from a works team. So his cars were always going to be six months or a year behind the best of the opposition. And in a way that appealed to something within Moss over the years, you know, he'd been, you know, he'd had you know, what was known as the Moss Jinx or the Hoodoo or, you know, or he'd been accused of breaking cars. So he kind of got used to being the underdog and he liked that. Um, I think that became part of his, what we would call today his brand, which nobody would have thought of calling it that. Um, but it was part of his appeal and he liked that. And the idea of he and the, this heir to a whiskey fortune sort of taking on the world was, was was very appealing to him and you know he had a great mechanic Alf Francis uh, who'd come over Polish mechanic who'd come over during the war fought in the Polish armoured corps and then um, then got a job as a racing mechanic with various teams and had been Moss's mechanic on Moss's own Maserati and they trusted each other, you know, um, disagreed a lot, had lots of rows, but, um, you know, uh, it, it worked well. So from then on, um, Moss raced in Grand Prix cars in Walker's cars, uh, which were either Coopers or Lotuses with Climax engines, Coopers to begin with. Then when Colin Chapman's Lotus became clearly the quicker car. Walker bought one for Moss. Um, and they were quick, but very fragile cars. So, you know, Moss had his two of his worst accidents in Lotuses when bits fell off um, or something happened. Um, something mysterious probably happened. Um, but they took enormous satisfaction from beating the factory teams with their private entry. Uh, it didn't, you know, it, it was, their success was patchy. Um, 59 and 60, uh, Jack Brabham and the, and the Works Coopers won the championships. But clearly, you know, they were more reliable and very quick. Moss, the Co Moss was driving Cooper. Um, they wanted to use the same gearbox as Coopers, but Coopers wouldn't let them. Uh, they wouldn't sell them a gearbox. So they went to an Italian 
guy that Al Francis knew called Valerio Carlotti, who made a very nice gearbox, but a very unreliable one, and was nice in every other way. And, you know, Moss led Grand Prix after Grand Prix only for the gearbox to break, which unreasonably exaggerated his reputation for breaking cars and being unkind to cars. It wasn't him, it was Carlotti. You know, in 1961, they faced their biggest challenge. When the formula changed, it went from two and a half litre to one and a half litre cars. And the British teams thought that this was being done to uh, spoil their chances because they were so dominant by that time. And it was being done to help Ferrari, who'd been working on a one and a half, a very good one and a half litre engine and car for some time. Um, so the British teams weren't really ready for it. Uh, and so it proved, you know, Ferrari came out with a fleet of fantastic one and a half litre cars, which had this twin nostril nose. Um, so they became a little bit like sharks. So they became known as the shark noses. Um, with good drivers, Phil Hill, Wolfgang von Trips, Richie Ginter. And, you know, they were clearly miles quicker than the British cars. However, you know, that handicap gave Moss the chance on the two real driver's circuits of the year, Monaco, you know, a very tight, twisty street circuit, and the Nürburgring, um, you know, 14 mile circuit with 174 corners and uh, endless hazards all over the place, you know. Um, you'd end up, you know, you went off at Nürburgring, you'd end up, you know, down a hillside in the middle of a forest. And at those two tracks, uh, Moss, you know, just produced his ultimate virtuoso performances to beat the Ferraris uh, against all the odds in this obsolete Lotus four-cylinder Lotus that he was driving. Um, and those really are the two great Formula One victories of, of his career, and they're the things that are probably best remembered uh, when his, you know, his talent was in its fullest flower. And you could see that he, you know, after Fangio's retirement, he was the undisputed number one in, in, in Formula One. Let's talk about 1962. There's there's a lot going on in in that final season. Spoiler for if you if you don't know what happens, because the 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 Ferrari animosity has bubbled away, and there's there's a deal in place for for 1963, which which is unique really 62. for 62. For, 62, yes, mm. um, for for Ferrari because um, they were going to let their cars race in different colors, weren't they? Yes, Ferrari had lent out cars occasionally. He'd lent them to a, you know, a Belgian team uh, a bit okay, for the Belgian Grand Prix. But as a rule, he didn't. Um, but it, by the end of 1961, I think Moss was fed up with not driving a Ferrari, basically, because it was so obvious how much better they'd been in 1961 and he must have been reflecting on how many championships he would have won had he accepted you know ferrari's offer in the in the mid 50s you know he would probably have won three or four world championships by then um so uh he went to modena 
and sat down with Ferrari. Ferrari took him to lunch in his private room at the Cavallino restaurant up across the road from the factory. Um, and they talked mostly in French, I think, because uh, Ferrari didn't speak any English and Moss didn't speak very much Italian, but they both spoke a bit of French. And they came to this historic agreement that in 1962, Moss would drive for Ferrari. But the cars, although they would be absolutely the same as the works team were getting, and they would be built, you know, according to Moss's desires, you know, if he said, you know, I'd like this on the car, or I'd like it to do that, that, you know, they'd be built according to that. They'd be painted in Rob Walker's colours, blue with a white noseband with a number on. Um, and they'd be run by a combination of the works team and the Walker team. And that, that would be for Formula One, sports cars, and GT cars with the new 250 GTO, um, which as we now know, Go for thirty million dollars a pop <laughs> if you're one of the thirty-six people lucky enough to own. I, I I remember chatting to Derek Bell about him selling his for next to nothing and, <laughs> and sees them go now and just bangs his head against the wall. <laughs> well, I've been driven in one up the hill at Goodwood by Jochen Maas. Oh wow! And they, I think they were only worth about ten million then. But even so, <laughs> even so, it was a pretty awe-inspiring experience just to be in one. Anyway, so that was the deal. And that was the deal for 1962. It looked like a very good one, you know. How could it fail, basically? So it was going to start at the beginning of the Grand Prix season, um, pretty much. So there were, there were early season races at which Moss was still going to drive the Rob Walker Lotus and you know, Cooper Sports Car and bits and bobs. So that's what he did at the beginning of 62 within you know, in mind that the Ferrari was going to come along very soon. On Easter Monday, April 23rd, I think, uh, that he went to race in the Glover Trophy, which was a Formula One race, a non-championship race at Goodwood with... Um, what had been Rob Walker's Lotus 1821, uh, modified Lotus 18, an obsolete car, basically. Against a good field, Graham Hill in a BRM, Jim Clark in a Lotus, John Surtees in one of the new Lolas. Moss set the fastest lap, pole position, had a bad start to the race, worked his way back up. It was a problem with the gear linkage, got it sorted out in a pit stop. And he'd worked his way back to fourth place with only a few laps to go um, when he came up behind Graham Hill, who was leading the race. And he was, you know, he, he was about to unlap himself when through something that's never been satisfactorily explained, he left the road, went over the grass, bumped over a kind of gully and hit an earth bank, probably at that point doing about 70 miles an hour having you know gone down from maybe 120 um head on into the earth bank clearly hadn't been able to do anything to steer it away from uh, from that 
and the you know the front of the car just crumpled up. These were very lightweight cars in those days. There was no safety cell of any sort. So he it took uh, three quarters of an hour to cut him out of the car. Luckily, amazingly, it didn't catch fire, uh, which was often happened in those days. The St. John ambulance were on the scene quite quickly and then, you know, mechanics turned up with the equipment for cutting the chassis tubes to free him. He was completely unconscious. Uh, he'd broken quite a lot of things and quite a lot of physical injuries. Um, but the worst thing was that his head had smashed forward into the steering wheel and he'd hit the left side of his head very badly which had uh, smashed his eye socket, but also sent his brain jolting around, He'd done serious damage to that. He was in a coma for 30 odd days in hospital. Um, and, uh, you know, it was obviously the crash was, you know, the front page lead on all the newspapers the next day because he was such a national hero. And his condition, you know, was on the front pages for weeks. Um, daily bulletins, you know. You know, will he recover? Then will he, you know, when he came out of the coma, will he race again? Um, he rather ill-advisedly gave one interview to a newspaper. He paid £10,000 for it, which was, you know, fortune those days. Um, when he was still pretty groggy. Saying yes, I'll you know I'll be back at the you know, racing in you know, a couple of months, um, which people didn't discount, you know, because he'd made miraculous recoveries from before, uh, you know, in 1960, also in a Lotus, he'd broken his back in several places and both his legs, and he'd been racing, you know, in the top line within seven weeks. Uh, he had phenomenal powers of recovery, phenomenal. So people thought, well, you know, good chance he's going to come out of this. But gradually the extent of his, of the damage, much more than physical damage, you know, the, 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 the damage that had been caused by the bang to his brain became apparent. And um, it was a year before he got into a racing car again. And he went back to Goodwood, funnily enough a year later, with a Lotus sports car that he'd raced before several times. And he lapped for half an hour or so on a bit of a dull day. And he came in after half an hour, having, you know, lapped pretty quickly. But he said, it's not the same. You know, whatever mechanism, you know, joins the brain to the feet and the hands, it's just not, the perceptions are not the same. When he got out of the car, you know, he said, I'm now a retired racing driver. That's it. Um, later, when he'd recovered a bit more, reflected in tranquility, he thought that he'd made that test, put himself to that test prematurely. That he'd, if he'd given it, you know, a few more months or maybe a year, he would have felt that all his own, his old perceptions, you know, were back and that everything had sort of knitted itself 
you know, back into the kind of neural muscular network. But he'd made his decision and he stuck to it as far as being a professional racing driver went. You know, if he'd left another year and he'd felt okay, he'd still only have been in his mid-thirties. Um, and he certainly had been expecting to race all the way through his thirties. You know, Fangio had gone on well into his forties, mm -hmm. you know, 49 when he retired, still world champion. So what 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 did what did Sterling do next? Because he he just then turned his hand to lots of things. He built that wonderful wonderful house and yeah, he 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 you know he was always very keen on earning a living. Um, so he went to work for the American Worldwide of Sports program as a commentator um, in Europe and in America. He commentated on American races. Well, he liked America. He always had done. Um, he he'd started a little property empire. He bought um, apartment blocks in London, central London, and rented them to people um, and was very meticulous about that. You know, he did most of, apparently he did most of the repairs himself. Um, Call the landlord and Sterling Moss shows up with a bag of tools. Exactly. And, you know, that's one of the reasons, you know, in London, he lived in Mayfair. He usually had a scooter or a moped. And one of the reasons was that, you know, any of his properties was only 10 minutes away if he needed to go and empty the electricity meter or you know, put a new light bulb in the hall or something. So he did quite a lot of that. But he also, you know, he had a home uh, for a while in Nassau in the Bahamas, a place he loved. Uh, and when he was married for the first time to his wife, Katie, um, he built a holiday home for them in Nassau, uh, which I think he gave to her as part of the divorce at the end of the 60s you know he lived a carried on living a pretty full life and i don't know if you remember when he fell down the lift shaft he'd built himself a house in the 60s in mayfair and shepherd market um, which became famous for all its electronic gadgets devices um you know electric garage doors <laughs> which you know, the late 50s, that was something. Uh, a bath, you could, you know, you could start the bath, start the water and regulate the temperature from anywhere in the house. <laughs> <laughs> and it also, it also had a lift. And um, it went down three stories, I think. This is a town, terraced townhouse. But it had this lift. And when he was 80, he still had the house. Um, he, uh, he was standing by the lift talking to somebody. Uh, he was about to get in, the lift doors opened and he got in and the lift car wasn't there. So he fell 30 feet onto a concrete floor, concrete base of the lift shaft. 80 years old, shattered both his ankles, other abrasions. And shock, I should think, you know, worst nightmare. But the weird thing is that six months later, he was driving at Goodwood in the revival meeting in his two-litre Os two Oscar sports car. Uh, and I was there watching him, you know, and he was racing the thing, he was drifting it. And I just thought, what sort of a man is this? It's phenomenal. You know, although I've followed his career the last 
the, the last few years of his professional career. I'd never seen him race in anger in his prime. But I did see him at the end of the 70s driving a van wall at Monza. And I saw him lots of other times in historics. And, you know, just to see that white helmet, you know, those white or pale blue overalls, that straight arm stance in the cockpit was such a thrill for people. And he, he, he knew that, you know, he was completely aware of that and he loved it. And he loved, loved giving that to his fans. And he always said that, you know, he was asked to tell stories over and over again. You know, he'd meet somebody for the first time and they'd say, oh, tell me about the Mila Mila in 1955 or, you know, tell me about the time you and Brooks won the British Grand Prix. And he told these stories, you know, I heard them from him. Uh, he told them with the same enthusiasm that he would have told them the first time. And he did that, he said, because although he was telling them for the millionth time, the person he was telling them to was hearing them from him for the first time. And he felt, you know, they deserved that, to hear it that way. That was a fantastic thing. The measure of the man. I think that's a lov lovely, lovely point to, to wrap this up. Richard, just tell us the name of the book again, because it, it's recording it on release day today, aren't we? We are. Uh, the book is called The Boy. Sterling Moss, A Life in 60 Laps. Richard Williams, thank you so much. I am going to drag you back so we can talk about Dick Seaman next time. Thank you, Matt. That would be a pleasure too. Thank you so much. I'd like to thank Richard Williams once again for joining us on History Hack. We've put the boy Sterling Moss, A Life in 60 Laps on our very own bookshop. Along with Richard's other book about Dick Seaman, which we're going to get him back, which is called A Race with Love and Death, and his incredible book about the Pescara Grand Prix in 1957 that we mentioned, it's called The Last Road Race. 10% of every purchase through our bookshop comes towards us and helps us keep the podcast going and sees us through these tricky times. Head to bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack to pick up your next great read. There are other ways to support the pod as well, because now it's the Patreon bit. In 2020, when the boss ladies Alex and Alina started History Hack, the world was very strange. And unfortunately, it looks like 2021 is going to be equally strange. We would love it if you're able to support the podcast in any way. It will allow us to keep up the regularity of the pods and also the great guests that we've been able to bring you over the last year. We exist on Patreon as History Hack and also on Podbean, our podcast host's own platform called Patreon. The reward tiers are being updated at the moment, so there's going to be some fantastic options for you to choose from. So if you're able to support us, that would be fantastic. So we thank you very much, and until the next time, bye. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough, Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.